So when we come to the book of Hebrews, and the author has taken 10 chapters on the doctrine of Christ before starting to give us practical exhortation, we might be tempted to ask why we haven't just skipped ahead a little bit and get to the practical stuff. After all, aren't our practical concerns really uh, what matters most? There are people who are struggling in their faith, marriages that might be struggling, health problems we're facing. We're dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic, including the uncertainty of the economy. Isn't this what we should be focusing on? Well, here's what the author of Hebrews knew that we need to grasp. It's that without a solid, well-built foundation on the doctrine of Christ's sacrifice, his high priestly ministry, the superiority of the new covenant of his blood, no preaching or instruction on practical matters will ever take root. Christ and Christ alone is the foundation we need in order to live and act as God has called us to. And without, the found, without Christ as our foundation, any laying on of, of moral instructions and commands is just placing an impossible burden on people. Because in no way can we sustain and fulfill the practical commands of Scripture without first wading deep into the waters of the doctrine of Christ and recognizing the source of our salvation and the power promised to those who believe. It's only in that context that we'll be able to practically persevere in our faith and see God's sanctifying work touch our practical needs and lives. So yes, our practical needs do matter. God cares about them deeply, but his primary call to us is to come to him through Christ. Before any part of our storm-tossed lives can be addressed, we need to settle ourselves unswervingly on Christ because he alone is our foundation, the foundation of our confidence to live as God has called us to. So with that in mind, I'll offer this as the main idea of my sermon, that Jesus, our advocate, has provided us access to God, so we're to live like it. Jesus, our advocate, has provided access to God, so we are to live like it. And this is my first point, that Jesus, our advocate, has provided us access to God's presence. Let's look at verses 19 to 21. This is how R.K. Hughes' commentator summed up these first few verses, pointing us to the access to God's presence provided by Christ, where he sits enthroned as our advocate. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Our confidence and our ability to come into God's presence, to enter the, the holy place where we find strength to persevere in our faith is set in the context of Jesus' sacrifice and priestly ministry. And as we've heard throughout our study of Hebrews, we don't approach God on our own merits, nor are we sustained in our Christian lives by something we try to manufacture in ourselves. Our ability to know God and live out his commands for our lives is entirely his gracious work that has been given to us in Christ. And the access we have to the very presence of God where Jesus now sits as our advocate makes the entire old covenant, the old way of approaching God, pale in comparison. Under the old covenant, only the high priest 
could enter the most holy place of the temple and, and only once a year. And this most holy place was separated by a physical curtain. And when people went to the temple in worship, it would have been unheard of for uh, the priest to greet them at the door and usher them right up to the curtain and draw it back saying, come on in, meet with God face to face. This kind of access was absurd and unthinkable because the physical curtain itself was a reminder of the barrier that separates God's presence from sinful humans. And direct access in that time to God was not possible under the old system because no sacrifice was sufficient enough to allow anyone to breach the barrier. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the curtain was torn in two, signaling that the barrier to God's presence was removed. Jesus' death removed the curtain of separation and opened up a new and living way to receive direct access to God. And as our passage says, believers can now approach God with confidence and boldness, not by passing through a material curtain, but by faith walking through the torn curtain of Christ's body, for his blood secures forgiveness of sins, and Christ is our mediator acts to bring us directly into God's presence. And the challenge for us in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews has to be, been to consider this very carefully and not turn from it. And you might wonder why in this season of Advent, why focus on the blood and bodily death of Christ? Why not just reflect on the manger and the scenes of angels announcing the birth of Christ? Why sing the songs that we sang this morning? And I so appreciate Dave leading us in. Well, Russell Moore, editor of Christianity Today, has written about the avoidance of blood language in some Christian circles, noting that for some, there's been a desire to rid Christianity of blood language altogether. He says, we love to sing and speak of new life and redemption, but some are hesitant to reference the blood that was necessary to secure those things. His point was that bloodless Christianity leaves a void. The blood of Christ is integral to our salvation. The blood of Christ is integral to our celebration of Christmas. Because at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God in Christ took on full humanity. And as he did, the cross was always in his view. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is the good news of great joy that was announced by the angels. That the Messiah who was born as a baby would one day shed his blood by dying on a cross for his sin. The blood of Jesus is not a metaphor. It's not simply an overused cliche. Without the shed blood of Christ, we lose the gospel. And it's precisely because of the blood of Jesus that access to God has been made possible. And we have been given every confidence to enter the presence of God, bringing to him our very real problems and practical needs. And when we approach God through the shed blood of Christ, walking by faith through the torn veil of his body, we see Jesus has been exalted and now sits at the Father's right hand as our great high priest, who, as we often sing in our church, ever lives and pleads for me. And this is what verse 21 tells us, that Jesus is our great high priest who mediates and represents us before God as our advocate. Jesus, our advocate, steps before God the Father, who is the judge, and together they agree that because those who have placed their faith in Christ are considered to be joined with him in his death, the penalty 
for our sin has been paid and no further punishment is necessary. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, dying as our substitute, shedding his blood is the only thing that perfectly and eternally settles our case before God, allowing us to be justified in his sight. So the application of these early verses in our passage is a challenge to hear and respond to the gospel. We've seen pictures of the gospel this morning in baptism in the Lord's Supper. Hear the, the message once again that it's our sin that has violated God's holy and righteous law and placed us as his enemies. And because of our sin, we stand before God guilty on all charges and rightfully deserving of his wrath. And the only just punishment that our sin deserves is eternal separation from God in hell. But the good news is that Jesus stands as our advocate between our repentant hearts and a holy God. Jesus, by virtue of his sinless life, having perfectly fulfilled God's law, sacrificed his life, taking on himself the wrath that our sin deserved, then rising from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was perfect and eternally able to satisfy the demands of God's holiness, now sits at the Father's right hand, advocating for us as one who has purchased his people by his blood. And when we turn to Jesus in faith, confessing him as Lord, crying out from hearts for him to save us, he pleads our case with the righteous judge and God the Father in faithfulness to his plan established before the foundations of the world, accepts his son's advocacy on our behalf. By faith, Jesus' blood is applied to our lives and we are declared justified before God and made righteous in his sight. We have no right to even begin to approach God on our own merits or, or perceived good works. Our only hope is Jesus who is our access to God and who now sits as our advocate before him. So here is the question. Have you come to God through Jesus Christ alone or are you attempting to approach God through other means, be it religious observation or church affiliation or maybe an attempt to try to uh, tip the scales in your favor by simply trying to be good? What Hebrews has taught us so far and what we're reminded of again here is that our confidence to come before God, sovereign king of the universe, in whose presence we find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That's only possible by repentance and faith in Jesus alone. It's in Christ that we find our ability also to now joyfully take up God's commands for his people and then bring them to bear on our practical problems and circumstances. And that's where we turn in the next few verses to the commands that have been, been given, and this will form the next three points in my sermon as we look first at verse 22, where we have a command to draw near, and then verse 23, where we have a command to hold fast, and then verse 24 and 5, a command to spur one another, to encourage one another. Let's look at verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a fairly straightforward command. It's a call to draw near to God. Well, drawing near was the fundamental problem that the author of Hebrews was trying to address for his people because they were tempted to turn from Christ and turn back to the old covenant system which had become obsolete. And like any good preacher does, he pointed them towards Jesus. And he was saying, this is the way, come this way. 
Take action. Don't settle for living a life distant from God's presence, but know the joy of communion with him that comes only through Christ who is our access and our advocate. And now in the same way, we are to take up this tremendous privilege of approaching God, drawing near to him, doing it intentionally, regularly, drawing near to God through Christ and Christ alone. Well, the question we have to ask is how do we do this? Or what does it mean to draw near to God? Well, it's nothing that we do in order to bring us in closer physical proximity to him. Rather, it's an action of our heart. And I like the way John Piper has said it. He said it like this. It's a directing of the heart into the presence of God who is as distant as the holy of holies in heaven and yet as near as the door of faith. In Psalm 63, we see David directing his heart into the presence of God and faith through prayer and worship. And David, at this point in his life, was in the wilderness of Judah. He was fleeing from his son Absalom. He was separated from God's temple in Jerusalem. And he writes in verse 1 of Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's prayer revealed a desperation in his heart to be in the presence of God, and it was backed up with an earnestness in seeking him. For us, the directing of our hearts into the presence of God means seeking him earnestly. That means seeking to find our satisfaction in him, to know his wisdom and counsel that comes from his word, to, to, to know and make his glory known in our lives, and to do so with an intense conviction and determination. It's not a light or a casual or a flippant approach to God. It's a daily determination to seek his face in every circumstance of our life. In Psalm 63, David goes on in the second verse to recount the ways in which he sought to draw near to God. He said, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your glory and power. David was motivated to continually direct his heart into the presence of God by reflecting on God's character and past faithfulness. And then in verse six, he mentions the way that he's presently seeking to draw near to God. Verse six says, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David used different moments of his day and different faculties to continually direct his heart into the presence of God by reminding himself of God's faithfulness, of his character, of his power. As Spurgeon said, though there was a desert around him, there was no desert in him. And the result of this continual intentional directing of his heart into the presence of God came a desire for more. For later in the psalm, David said, his soul clings to God. So in response to our command to draw near to God, the question to us is, are we clinging our souls to God? Though there might be a desert around us, are we intentionally directing our hearts into the presence of God through the means that he's given us of scripture and prayer and worship? And is it our intent to cling to God by faith in Christ's sacrifice with an earnestness in order to find the satisfaction and joy that he promises? More than that, the author of Hebrews instructs us to draw near with a true heart, with hearts that have been made new through the redeeming work of Christ. The earnest directing of our hearts into the presence of God can be accomplished in full assurance of faith because in Christ, our hearts are made new, having been sprinkled by his blood and made clean from an evil conscience. 
If we look at verse 22, the author is drawing on some ceremonial imagery from the Old Testament to make his point. Priests were consecrated for service by having the blood of an animal sacrifice sprinkled on them. And in Exodus, we read of Moses sprinkling the people with the blood of a sacrifice as the Old Covenant was initiated. But now in the New Covenant of Christ's blood, our hearts are said to be inwardly sprinkled and cleansed. And this cleansing, it's not external and incomplete, requiring an ongoing sacrifice, but it's internal and complete because it's the blood of Christ that's been applied. And this is pictured beautifully for us in baptism as an outward sign that represents the purification that Christ does in our hearts. And as a result, the guilt of sin is removed and our consciences can rest easy. But practically, we don't always experience this easy rest before God. At times, we struggle with lack of assurance of faith before God. So what do we do in those moments when we struggle and our hearts waver and we we grow cold and we have uncertainty before God and rather than drawing near to Him in full assurance of faith, we seem to cower? Well, I asked this of a few Christian brothers and and one that I chatted with uh, identified the sin of idolatry as a possible cause for our lack of assurance. In Ezekiel 11, 18 to 21, God's promise of the new covenant came with a promise to give the people an undivided heart, a new spirit, removing their heart of stone, replacing it with a heart of flesh. And in the same passage, that's contrasted with people whose hearts were devoted to vile, evil images. They were devoted to idolatry. And the point of application for us is to recognize that those in Christ with our new covenant hearts were still susceptible to the sin of idolatry, that is the stealing of God's rightful glory and worship and giving it to something or someone else. So in response, what do we do? Well, we need to be intentional, I think, about what we expose our hearts to on a day-to-day basis. And we need to be active in identifying those things, those potentially idolatrous things that act to wear down our assurance. Identify those things that attack our genuine commitment to God, identify those things that would seduce us away from drawing near to God, the very things that God would desire to cleanse us of through Christ. And through prayer and meditation on Scripture, let's conduct regular introspection. And like the psalmist say, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Another Christian brother that I asked this question of pointed to our tendency to allow our consciences to be defined by the world rather than by God's word. And he recommended a book to me by J.I. Packer called A Quest for Godliness that looks at the Puritan's vision of the Christian life. And in the chapter on Christian conscience, Packer says this. He says, for the Puritans, their attitude was that God must control our consciences absolutely. The conscience must be subjected to him and to him alone, for he alone is Lord of the conscience. So the practical step for us in order to draw near to God in full assurance of faith is to harness our consciences to Scripture. We need to lean and learn intimately the mind and will of God that has been revealed to us and allow that to shape us. And as we seek to draw near to God in daily earnestness, let's be aware of our tendency toward idolatry and allow our consciences to be refined and recalibrated by Scripture. 
So we are to draw near. Our second command in verse 23 says this, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. The verb translated as hold fast has the sense of holding firm, securing or tightening down our confession of hope. In preparation for the expected opposition that we will face in our world as a result of our faith, we're to batten down the hatches and we're to prepare ourselves now before the storm arrives. John Owen said we're not to have a feeble or irresolute mind about continuing in the profession of faith against difficulties and oppositions. So we're not to give in on points of doctrine or worship that would be inconsistent with the faith that we have professed. We're not to waver, we're not to bend, we're not to yield or become off balance due to the winds of pressure that blow on us from a world around us. Instead, we're to hold firm, we're to stay fast, be fixed, be stable, hold on to the confession of faith that we hold. And we're to draw near to God with full assurance of faith while not letting go of the truth of who Christ is and his saving work. Well, again, how do we do this? Well, I'd like to point us toward the early church to see what they did in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, we read of the church facing uh, their first bout of persecution for preaching the gospel. And in the midst of that, they didn't let go of the truth of who Christ was. Instead, they turned to God's word and in prayer to help bring understanding to their circumstances. And we read their prayer in Acts chapter 4 verses 24 to 30, and it's actually a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. And they prayed the first verse of Psalm chapter 2, which says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They asked the question of God. They were saying, why is the persecution that we're now experiencing happening? And they found an answer to that question in the second verse of Psalm chapter 2. And so they prayed, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They understood that Psalm chapter 2 was pointing forward to Jesus and described how the nations would continue to rebel and rise up against the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And they applied this understanding of the psalm to their current circumstances, and they continued praying, saying, for truly in the city there were those gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And then they list Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people who were raging and plotting in opposition to Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 4, we have a picture of the early church thinking theologically about their circumstances and the persecution they were facing. The opposition prophesied about the Messiah in Psalm chapter 2, which Jesus faced in his life and death, was now being experienced by the newly formed church in Acts chapter 4. And by extension, we can say that the true church in all ages can expect to experience this raging and plotting of people setting themselves against God and his anointed Messiah. So how do we hold fast to the confession of our faith? Well, I think we start by recognizing the reality of the attacks that exist, attacks against our faith. And this comes out in different ways. Many try to reinvent Jesus to suit their own image or their own ideas, or they try to appropriate him in some sort of uh, support for their sinful ideas, particularly these days of, of marriage and sexuality and gender and the like. And what's so unique about the age that we live in is how easy and pervasive it is for people to do this. And believers, if we're not soaking ourselves 
in the truth of Scripture, if we're not being dis disciplined and discerning, particularly in those unguarded moments we have on our phones or computers of digital wandering, I think we'll find that it's easy to be drawn away by arguments that might sound convincing on the outside, but in reality have no substance and only, in effect, reveal depravity and sin before God. So let's recognize the demand, this command to hold fast places on our effort in remaining true to Christ in both doctrine and practice in a world that's hostile to the gospel message. Holding fast to the confession of our hope means holding on to the absolute truth of scripture, allowing it to impact our lives, our marriages, our work, our relationships, and never wavering or straying from it in any capacity because the result is disastrous, it will result in an inability to draw near to God. But let, us, let me point us to the good news in this passage, that our ability to fulfill this command and endure faithfully comes not as a result of our own will or tenacity, but because of God's provided resources, the hope we possess, and God's faithfulness. We're told, hold fast the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. For unbelievers, hope is always short-lasting, has no anchor in reality. But for believers, our hope is certain and concrete. It's objective reality. Hebrews 6.18 says it's backed by God's oath, and it points to a future eternity in heaven with him. It's anchored at the right hand of God in Christ, firmly in the grasp of his sovereignty, and guaranteed by the only one who is perfectly faithful and trustworthy to keep his promises. This is why we can hold fast to the confession of our faith in a world that rages against the Lord and his anointed because our hope is firmly founded on Christ and God who made the promise is perfectly faithful and will not let us down when darkness veils his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace and every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil, say it with me, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, despite the feelings that surround our circumstances and when God may seem silent in the moments of our deepest need, in the face of false teaching and temptations by the world around us that may entice us to compromise our faith, remind yourself that God has spoken definitively in his son Jesus and we are not to be swayed because God is faithful to keep his promise. So we are to draw near we are to hold fast in the last command from verses 24 and 25. Say this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Recall back in verse 19 that the author has addressed this section of his letter to his audience whom he calls brothers. He says, therefore, brothers, that says that those who would draw near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus have been united in a very specific way. We're more than just a loose-knit community of like-minded people. We're more than just uh, an organizational or a social structure. But by virtue of the blood of Christ, we're adopted members of God's family. And as his children, our relationship to one another has been radically remade. And we're to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ so that 
we might receive the blessing God intends to bring through this unity. The unity of the church is, is a gracious gift that God has provided for the blessing and perseverance for all who would draw near to him in Christ. So our unity naturally comes with an instruction and a responsibility, and that is to consider one another. Specifically, consider how to stir each other up. That is to provoke, to agitate our brothers and sisters in Christ to love and good works. Many who have an earthly sibling know exactly what it means to provoke them. I have a brother. I was an expert when we were children at provoking my brother. There are stories that could be told. Spiritually, though, in the midst of the circumstances that our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing... We're told to continually provoke and agitate our brothers and sisters in Christ, but in a positive way, in a positive way toward God so that they might cast off their prevailing sense of sin, that they may remain faithful to God in every circumstance, that their desire to love God and obey God and, and seek him by reading his word and obedience to scripture would be known in their lives. So this command, it requires some action on our part. We're to consider how to do the stirring up. It's not spontaneous. We're not passive, but we're proactive in looking for opportunities to push one forward in their faith. And I think there's a prayer here specifically that we can take on to begin to discern our own spiritual gifts, which scripture says is given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the body. So those who are saved by the blood of Christ have been gifted by his spirit for the for the growth and the maturation and the nurturing and the edification of the church. So here are some practical application steps and action steps we can take. First, knowing that God has united us in Christ as brothers and sisters and knowing that we act out this unity through church membership, we need to engage ourselves in the life of the church. We need to invest ourselves relationally in those around us. Why do we do this? Well, so that we can be effective encouragers who understand some of the needs that exist in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Second, I think we need to prayerfully consider how God has uniquely gifted each of us in order to edify and encourage the body to meet the needs that exist. And then third, we need to take action by practically stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit to put those gifts to use and become provokers of others to love and good works. So I invite you this morning to consider where are you in that chain of steps? Is there a need to intentionally invest yourself in the lives of our brothers and sisters here in a greater way? Is there a need to prayerfully discern your spiritual gifts? Is there a need to find ways to put those gifts into action? And as, as you do these steps, as we all do these steps, know that it's the joy of the leadership here to take up the ministry of equipping the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. But at the same time, it ought to be the joy of everyone here to take up the ministry of provocation and stirring up. And we do this because God has given us the command as a means to help us persevere in our faith through all circumstances. And if we look in verse 20, 25, we see that there's another means that he's given us, and that's the regular gathering of the church for worship. And we're told not to, to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. And it seems that some in the early church had abandoned regular times of fellowship and worship from their lifestyle, and it had become a habit for them to do this. 
And whatever the reason was, these believers were trying to survive on their own. And as a result, they were in serious danger of abandoning their faith and turning their back on Christ. And the same danger exists for us today. Assurance of our faith and drawing near to God with boldness will be a continual struggle if we choose to separate ourselves from the corporate life of the church, particularly the regular weekly worship service. Now understand, church attendance doesn't save us. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. However, God calls us to not neglect meeting together regularly for the purpose of our endurance in the faith. So the command from this verse is straightforward. When the church meets for worship, we're to find ourselves there making it a priority and not an afterthought. And this is a God-given means where encouragement to persevere happens. Now it's easy to find many reasons to absent ourselves from corporate worship. And understand, I'm not suggesting unwise, unhealthy, or frenetic activity, nor is this an attempt to burden anyone with a guilt trip. But it is a challenge to examine the patterns and habits that perhaps we've settled into, maybe as a result of the past two or three years. And it's a call to hear and heed God's call to prioritize regular worship with his people in the church. And according to verse 25, we're to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. Referencing the day of the Lord spoken of in scripture when Christ will return in final judgment and our salvation will be fully realized. It will be the day when all of God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will receive the reward that's been promised and will be gathered to him around his throne. There's a warning and there's a comfort here. To not prioritize the meeting of the church for worship is to neglect the gracious means that God has given to help us persevere in our faith. It's also to neglect the joy that comes from gathering with brothers and sisters and joyfully looking forward to the coming of Christ. Gathering together in worship is not just a nice thing that Christians do week after week to fill a few hours on a Sunday morning. It's not something we do to try to win favor with God. It's a way in which we begin to live out our future reality already that is yet to come, and it's intended to remind us of the imminence of Christ's return and the fulfillment of our hope that awaits. The gathering of the church for worship is not something we should try to excuse ourselves from. It's a beautiful necessity. It's a beautiful privilege God has given for our good and his glory. Jonathan Lehman, in an article, sums it up like this. He says, the gathering of a church is both an embassy of Christ's kingdom and the temporary geography of that kingdom. We gather in order to represent heaven's rule and judgments, establish a visible outpost of Christ's kingdom, testify to the king, identify citizens of the kingdom, form a people, mobilize a people, and exalt the king. It's where we as believers show what we are, learn what we are, become what we are, rejoice and give praise to God for what we are. The application to this might sound overly simple, yet it's profoundly powerful when put into practice, and it's this, come to church. Come to church to worship. Prioritize the corporate worship and fellowship of God's people because it's God's intended means to strengthen and encourage us as we seek to live for him. So as we move forward in the book of Hebrews in the coming weeks, and we move from doctrine to discipline, let's begin by recognizing the confidence we have that comes from our access to God, provided only by the blood of Christ. 
who is our advocate. And let's walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's joyfully take up the commands that God has given us and bring them to bear in each circumstance and situation of our life, knowing that it's God's desire for us to draw near to him through Christ with wholehearted sincerity. And let's be vigilant about doing that, about directing our hearts into the presence of God through the means of scripture and prayer and worship and earnestly seek him daily. And let's remember to hold fast to the confession of our faith, being wise about the world we live in, remembering that our hope is firmly founded in Christ alone, who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And he who made the promise is faithful and will not let us down. Let's also devote ourselves to corporate worship and to do everything we can to provoke our brothers and sisters to love and good deeds, constantly reminding and encouraging each other of the hope that awaits when Christ returns. And let's do so knowing that in Christ, united together by his precious blood, we have hearts that have been cleansed. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your son, Jesus who has opened up a new and living way for us to draw near to you. And I thank you that because of his perfect sacrifice, the curtain of separation has been removed. And through repentance and faith, we can pass through the torn curtain of Christ's body, approaching you with confidence and boldness, coming directly into your presence where we find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that in the midst of the trials and circumstances of life that are represented, that you would help us to bring everything to the cross of Christ and take refuge in Christ alone. This Christmas season, help us not to forget the cross and the blood that Jesus shed that allows us to be justified before you. God, and also help us to joyfully take up your commands to draw near and hold fast and encourage one another as we cling our hearts to you. Father, as we gather together weekly for worship, would you be glorified and exalted in us and be pleased to form us as your people and mobilize us as your people in the world in which you've placed us as we eagerly await your return. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.